0: Hey guys, Jared Crawford here, producer of the Flyover Country podcast. Got a really fun episode for you guys today. Our very own Scott Jennings and Joe Arnold spent two days this week taking over 97.1 FM talk, the Mark Reardon show. And so today we've got a super cut of all their interviews that they did over the last couple of days. Today we're bringing you the first day of interviews. Tomorrow we'll be bringing you the second day of interviews. Uh, but today we've got Senator Rand Paul to talk a little bit about Fauci and Ukraine. Uh, Anthony Kastrovins, uh from MLB.com to talk about analytics and some of the things going on in baseball today. Josh Kraushauer, uh previous guest on the Fly Over Country podcast to talk midterms and politics. Dave Simons talks a little bit about stock market and things going on with your retirement. And then finally, we've got Philip Holloway to talk about was one of the stranger stories this week of the uh, prison guard and inmate escapee running wild across the country. So join us for a a slate of really great interviews on a bunch of different topics. Again, uh, first day here from Joe and Scott, taking over 97.1 FM Talk, the Mark Reardon Show. Tomorrow we will have day two for you. So tune in uh, over the next couple of days to hear all their interviews. Uh, but we'll jump right into the uh, the first day here, starting off with Senator Rand Paul. Appreciate everybody uh, joining us on the Flyover Country podcast and uh, joining us for today's show. Uh, so let's get right into it.
1: Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff.
2: FM Talks, Scott Jennings, along with Joe Arnold, right here coming at you in St. Louis, Missouri. And we're proud to welcome to the airwaves United States Senator Rand Paul from the great Commonwealth of Kentucky. Senator Paul, thanks for being
3: with us today. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm glad that St. Louis has accepted you, too. I thought for sure they'd reject you.
2: Well, (laughs) We've only been on for 10 minutes so far, so the the,
4: the day is it's So
3: it's early in the broadcast. We'll see what happens.
4: Thanks for the vote of confidence, sir. Hey, I wanna, we do want to talk to you about uh, about Anthony Fauci, and, and I have some origin Wuhan questions for you. But first, news of the day, I do need, need to get your reaction to the president's comments today on inflation. Just what is, what's your gut call
3: here? Well, they still don't understand what causes inflation, so they really can't have a solution for inflation if they don't know what causes it. Inflation is an increase in the money supply. When the money supply increases, you increase demand, you increase prices typically you increase the money supply because you're paying for debt. So the Federal Reserve monetizes debt. One of the measures of the money supply is the M2. It's a broad measure of the money supply. And over the last three years, annualized, the money supply has gone up at an annualized rate of about 15%. Last January, it was going up at 27%. So that's where inflation comes from. Everything else is just sort of trying to do misdirection or trying to get you to look at other things or blame it on Putin or this and that. But it has to do with uh, deficit spending. And they think they can get out of it with more deficit spending. But in reality, it's big government. It's spending money you don't have. And then the Federal Reserve pays for the debt. But in doing so, creates new currency and you pay an inflation tax. So
4: you're you're addressing my next question, Senator. And that was because the president today, again, kind of doubled down on Hey, we're we're reducing the debt here. This is good. This is overall good for the economy. You've been a long time deficit and debt hawk.
3: What where, where, does that hold any water? Well, he's playing games. Well, what they did is they drove the annual deficit. This is how much debt you get in one year. They drove it to historic proportions. We borrowed more in the last two years, nearly six trillion, than we've ever borrowed in the entire history of the country, including World War II. So when they say they're reducing the deficit, it's sort of like uh, what they're leaving out is, hey, we set a record. We we had more deficit than ever, and now next year we're going to have less deficit than the record deficit. But that doesn't really mean anything. doesn't mean they're doing a good job. If they ran a surplus, that would be something. But it, it, you know, what if next year there was a $10 trillion deficit in one year, and the year after that there was only a $2 trillion deficit, you'd say, wow, we reduced the annual deficit by $8 trillion but they're not telling you the real truth they still added 2 trillion so this this year there'll still be a trillion dollars added in deficit so no i mean the deficit is the problem and uh it's them playing word games with you to try to convince you that uh, somehow uh biden has reduced the the debt he's reduced the deficit but actually it wasn't even responsible for him reducing it it's the expiration of all that extra money they were passing out during covid lockdown and we've got even more
2: spending to come, Senator. We've got Ukraine money coming. We've got more COVID emergency money coming, possibly. Can you give us a little update, your perspective on the floor of the U.S. Senate? Will we see more spending on Ukraine and COVID in the next couple of weeks?
3: Yeah. First, people need to realize how much we spent. We spent about $20 billion. We spent 6 billion between 2014 and and 2021 or 2022 in ukraine we then appropriated about a month ago 14 more billion so we're up to 20 billion for ukraine this bill is going to be 40 billion so that'll make 60 billion dollars do you know how much russia spends in one year about 55 so we will now have given ukraine more money than russia spends in an entire year And look, my sympathies are with Ukraine. I wish them luck. I want them to defeat the Russians. I want them to push the Russians out of their country. But we also have to be concerned with our country and with double-digit inflation here. This will make it worse. But I can tell you on your show today something we haven't told anybody yet is that I'm going to have an amendment, and I'm going to add an amendment to it to create a special inspector general to oversee this money to make sure – Look, in the, everybody's gaga over Ukraine, and that's fine. But historically, they've been in the top ten for corrupt countries. So I think we do need to – we can't just shovel piles of money out the door, you know, billions of dollars and have nobody oversee it. In Afghanistan, we had something called a special inspector general. They called him SIGAR. We're going to ask for the same thing for Ukraine.
2: Amazing breaking news on uh, 97.1 FM Talk today. Rand Paul filing an amendment to create a special inspector general to oversee the Ukraine money. And uh, as you pointed out, Ukraine has been a corrupt country. Speaking of corruption, let's change topics. Yeah, I want to ask you, Senator, about and speaking of oversight in this regard as well, you,
4: perhaps more than anyone else in Washington, D.C. or the country, has have been uh, overseeing the, the work of Dr. Anthony Fauci here. I know that you filed different amendments. You're trying to do away with the actual title that he currently has. What's the progress on that? And where do you think we stand as a country in terms of how we regard him uh, and, and his advice right now?
3: I think to fully analyze who this man is and what a menace he is, you have to listen to his comments. The most recent comments are probably the most arrogant I've ever heard, not only from an elected official, but from a bureaucrat as, such as he is. He said when the court case came out, a U.S. federal district judge in Florida ruled that the CDC was never given the power, nor did the Constitution give them the power, to mandate masks on planes. And his response to this was, how dare they? How dare the courts get involved with deciding whether public health mandates by science himself, Dr. Fauci, whether or not they're appropriate? That was his comment. How dare they? As if it was somehow inappropriate for the courts to review his work. But what he's saying, you you have to really think about this. The courts adjudicate the Constitution. The Constitution protects our individual liberty. So when the courts examine a question, whether government has the power to make us do something, this is one of the most basic, most important functions in our country, the interaction between the elected officials, the courts, and our liberty, and the Constitution. And Fauci says, how dare they get involved? That is a level of arrogance beyond anything that I could have ever imagined coming from an elected official, but even more so from a bureaucrat. So this is a man who has no respect for your liberty, no respect for the courts, no respect for the oversight of the courts over government. And so we can't separate him soon enough from government.
2: Uh conservatives are wondering, Senator Paul, obviously Fauci has been serving under uh, Joe Biden right now and a Democratic Congress, but Republicans are favored to win the midterm. Do you believe that the Republican Party in the House and the Senate will hold Fauci accountable? And do you believe he will resign from office if the Republicans win the midterms?
3: You know, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't see the writing on the wall and doesn't retire even before then, so he doesn't seen to be retiring right after the election. Either way, whether he's there or not, we will subpoena him and his records. And the reason isn't so much to uh, put him in jail, even though I think he did lie to Congress, and it's not so much to attach blame to him, although I think he deserves some blame, particularly if the virus came from a lab that he was supporting in Wuhan. Um, it's really to try to make sure this doesn't happen again. it's it's hard to imagine any other time in our history when a million Americans die and there's been no investigation, not one committee hearing over the origins of this virus. So we have hearings all the time. We have hearings on whether or not the plastic in your baby's bottles is causing cancer. We have hearings on the time, you know, whether Roundup causes cancer, but we haven't had one hearing on the origins of a virus that caused a million people to die for which there is a mountain of evidence that suggests that it came from a lab. Not 100% proof, but you know, I started out disbelieving. I thought the scientists wouldn't lie to us, and I read their statements and thought, you know, they've looked at this and they're experts. And then I discovered that all of them were, you know, had a conflict of interest. That they had money involved. That they were being paid hundreds of millions of dollars to, uh, you know, fund this research in Wuhan and the more i the more i became to doubt the narrative and at this point i'm 95 percent convinced that this came from a lab and i'm not alone if i get the chairman's gavel when we go into this i will use subpoena power to get all the records but i also will bring in scientists i believe in hearing from both sides we haven't heard any of the scientists if you watch cnn or msnbc you don't hear any of the scientists on the other side they're well-respected scientists who are not republicans most of them are democrats but who are on the other side of this who believe that gain-of-function research, where you create viruses, they believe that it's dangerous. Uh, there's one from MIT who had an op-ed in the Washington Post a couple of months ago who said that gain-of-function research is a risk to civilization. It's a gamble that we shouldn't take. And that's pretty strong words from somebody who is not a political partisan. He's somebody who created some of the, you know, most famous DNA technology of our time. So we should hear from both sides, but we've not had one hearing. This is, you know, in many ways, there is an argument that this has been one of the biggest cover-ups of a government-created disaster that we've ever had.
2: Senator, you've been very generous with your time. I know you have to go, but before you leave us, can you give us a quick 20 seconds on your projections? How will the Republican Party do in the 2022 midterms?
3: I would say... 80% chance we take over the house. That sounds high, but that's what I feel. I think a little better than 50 50 on the Senate. I do think that the one thing the Biden administration and Democrats can't escape is the inflation, the price in the grocery store, double digit inflation, 40% increase in gas prices. I don't think that's going away. They're spending more money. They're shoveling good money after bad out the door. And as they do, inflation's going to get worse. They're going to be fearful of raising interest rates too much. They're trying to. But the only thing that could make it even worse than now would be a recession between now and then with high unemployment. That's typically the way inflationary cycles end. In the seventies, you'd go to high interest rates, you'd have a recession, you'd have high unemployment, and that's the way you get out of the inflationary cycle. I hope it doesn't happen, but I fear that the Democrats, you know, borrow and spend policies are leading us in that direction. But I don't see how they escape that before the election, and that's hard. Voters all see that, and they see who's in charge in government. Democrats, president, Democrat Congress, Democrat Senate. It's just hard for them to escape that.
4: Senator Rand Paul, thanks for your time, sir. Thanks, guys. We wish you luck in St. Louis. Come back and visit us. Yeah. (laughs) See you, Rand. See you,
2: Rand. Thanks, buddy.
3: All
4: right. All right. It's 3.31 in St. Louis. Hey, I'm Joe Arnold, and this is Scott Jennings alongside. If you're wondering if you turn on to the wrong station, this is 97.1 FM Talk. This is the Mark Weirdon Show. Mark has the Rona, and so Scott and I are are stepping in and 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 calling calling on our friends, yeah, <laughs> to help us out as well and thanks again to Rand Paul for uh I've known Rand uh i guess now about thirteen years. I first met him on the primary campaign trail right around right now, actually about a year before he actually won the Senate
2: primary in twenty ten and and to understand in Kentucky politics what a force he is, I see a lot of polling privy to a lot of that stuff and Rand Paul is the most popular Republican. Outside, barely outside of Donald Trump in the state of Kentucky, and what he was talking about with us today, Dr. Fauci holding him accountable, his narrative on that I think has really been a national leader, thought leader for the Republican Party. But the the amount of response he gets from Kentuckians on that topic, uh, it, it's hard to it's hard to overstate it. it. It really, and he's on the ballot this year, I should say, in 2022, running against uh, Democrat Charles Booker. This is a safe Republican seat in Kentucky for Rand, and I suspect uh, when the Republicans take over. Uh, after the midterm, you're going to see Rand Paul staying hot on the trail of Anthony Fauci. And
4: uh, go ahead and hit that Twitter box as we speak, because uh, Rand making some news for the Mark Reardon Show, a 97.1 FM talk, and that is that he is going to be proposing an amendment that the money that's being spent by the U.S. Uh, to assist Ukraine will fall under the auspices of an inspector general. And I'd be curious about that because he made a, a good argument for you know other. I mean, we we all know what happened to the are we this, the stories that we've heard about the pallets of cash in Iraq and other places. And I'll be
2: very curious to see what kind of traction this gets, Scott. Yeah, he made a great argument about the amount of money being spent. He also talked about when we had an inspector general for the United States activity and spending in Iraq. And it strikes me that uh, it would be very difficult to vote against for someone in either party if you take the amount of money being spent in a place that, as he pointed out, historically has corruption. I thought his messaging on it uh, Joe was really good because he talked about how much he wants Ukraine to win. He wants them to defeat the Russians. He, you know, he he's cheering for the Ukrainians here, but still looking out for the American taxpayer. That that's a political message. You're trying to pass a bill in the midst of inflation, in the midst of all the other economic turmoil, and you've got a guy looking out, looking out for where the American tax dollars are going. That's going to sell. Rand has a real knack, actually, for putting these amendments on the floor at like the right time, and we can talk more about him later, but he, he's got he's got a knack for timing on stuff like that.
4: So as we know, spending is up. We know inflation is up. You know what's down, Scott? Uh, home runs. Home runs. Home runs are down. Runs are down. Uh, MLB teams averaging 4.04 runs per game right now, the lowest mark for a season since 1981. When mm. we come back here on 97.1 FM Talk, Anthony Kastrovitz, from MLB Network and among other, and also the author of A Fan's Guide to Baseball Analytics. We'll talk to him about baseball, some Cardinals, and where are all the home runs? 90, we come back. Yeah.
2: Mark Reardon show on 97.
4: one FM Talk. And in for Mark Reardon on this Tuesday afternoon, I'm Joe Arnold, Scott Jennings alongside. We're longtime friends of Mark Reardon. He's at home with the Rona, so we decided to help him out for the next couple of days
2: and, and we're this let's love being back in St. Louis, Scott. It's, it's amazing. amazing. Even though Mark Reardon did uh, cause a super spreader event at the Kentucky Derby, well, in Mortal Louis we will forgive him for his transgressions and help him get his job done over the next couple of days, and hopefully, hopefully welcome him back here on Thursday. By the way, the Dow is down about 85 points right now. Uh,
4: coming up in the next hour, Dave Simons, host of uh, KMOX's Dollars and Cents, will join joining us talking a little bit more about that, talking about uh, with Josh Hour as well next hour. Right now, I want to get right to baseball, though, Scott. Uh, we mentioned, by the way, uh, it's one thing to talk about run depletion, and something else to talk about Paul DeYoung. So Paul DeYoung sent down to uh, AAA. They brought up uh, Kramer Robertson. But overall run production is down in baseball this year
2: yeah folks just aren't hitting the ball out of the ballpark as much and uh and offensive uh offensive output is down so we've got a guest on with us today uh from mlb.com a famed author and writer you see him uh uh if you follow mlb action a lot anthony kestrovins is with us anthony thanks for joining us here on uh, one fm talk
5: Hey, thanks for having me, and thanks for calling me a famed author. I like that a lot. Hey,
2: but I tell you what, Scott talked up your book to me, (laughs) A a Fan's
4: Guide to Baseball Analytics, uh, and I'll tell you, he, he talked all about this And
2: has tried to explain some of these statistics to me that are sometimes a little dense. What what was interesting to us about your book was, um, you know, I kind of tried to get into the analytics game before Joe did. And I said, you've got to read this book because this guy explains every single one of these numbers you're seeing. But I think you had a similar transformation. You became, you sort of transformed into an analytics guy, which read to your book project. Maybe talk a little bit about how you you, uh, absorbed all this information and and sort of uh, bought into it.
5: Yeah, the book is written for people like me or like I was where, you know, I, I'm not mathematically inclined and I'm still not mathematically inclined. But if you're going to watch baseball in the year 2022 and beyond, uh, we all know that analytics is a is a big driver of the sport. It's an increasingly big driver of every professional sport uh, for better or worse. And, you know, just it, it heightens your appreciation for what you're watching when you know how to evaluate it properly. And you know how teams are being constructed and that sort of thing. So in covering baseball, I had to learn all these concepts. And I just try to help the reader learn them along with me um, and, and write it in a you – I know, try to make keep it fun and light as opposed to, you know, just boring mathematical equations that are hard to grasp. I try to make it easy to grasp. And, and uh, you know, I think I have some value for that.
2: The name of the book is A Fan's Guide to Baseball Analytics. And you can go on uh, Amazon or wherever you buy your books and and grab that. So as you were putting it together, I just have to ask, of all the newfangled offensive statistics that you can look at that are apart from runs, hits, batting average, which one would you say is the most complete tell of how much a player is contributing to his team or how good a player is offensively?
5: Yeah, for me, it's, it's weighted runs created plus. Which is a really, uh, you know, weighted runs.
4: Yeah, right, really
5: time. cumbersome. Created term. Plus, Man, that's, WRC that's plus. Sometimes that's sometimes the problem with these stats is they just need a cooler name, you know, an easier uh, name to embrace. But or OPS plus works. It's just either one. You know, weighted runs created plus you get at Fangraphs dot com. OPS plus you get at Baseball Reference. So it's whichever page you prefer to go to for a guy's, uh, you know, offensive stats. Um, they, they both basically tell the same story where wh- how is he performing relative to the league average and it adjusts for his home, you know, for his ballpark where he's played his games, which as we know really matters a lot in baseball. Um, we just had a, uh, the manager of the Rangers called Yankee stadium, a little league park the other day, you know, so like yeah. Yankee sta- stadium plays a lot different than Oakland Coliseum. You know, it's just the nature of the beast. So it adjusts for that. It accounts for that. It also accounts for what's going around in the league. And you guys mentioned earlier that, you know, offense is down. Uh, so far uh, in this young season, and power is down, so it accounts for that as well. You know, 20 home runs uh, in in 1968 uh, means a different thing than 20 home runs in 1998. You know, we know that in baseball history. So a, a stat like that uh, adjusting accounts for that and, and just gives you a better idea of how guys perform.
2: Speaking of uh, OPS plus, let me read you the OPS plus number of a player for the St. Louis Cardinals. 26 that is the starting shortstop paul de young yeah. and it was announced right as we were coming on the air today that the cardinals have made a move and sent paul de young down to memphis uh, that number 26 just give us yeah. just give us an idea of like you know how, how do i how do i assess that number you say ops plus is a number how bad is that yeah it's bad uh so OPS plus <laughs>
5: and and weighted create, runs created plus they both 100 is league average okay so you think of just the average player is a 100 and so that means, uh, Mr. DeYoung is 74% worse than league average. So that really puts that into context. And he's, it's, uh, unfortunately the last three years, his OPS plus has gone down and that's actually pretty rare, you know, to have that steady decline like that, you know, at his age. Um, he's been in the eighties, uh, in OPS plus the last couple of years, which is not great, of course, but if you're playing really good defense, you know, eighties is playable, but obviously for him right now, it got to the point of just not being playable anymore. Um, for the moment, at least, they will go down to AAA. But, um, you know, he's, he's fared really well defensively in the defensive metrics. But, uh, yeah, you know, you can only run that out there so often with those kind of offensive numbers.
4: So we hear so many more uh, data points uh, now than I ever did growing up. I'm I'm 55 going on 85, okay Anthony, in terms of I mean I'm someone still I look at batting average. Okay, I know that's passé yeah. whatever else like whatever but I, do, I do. I do like I I, I had a, an old scorecard the other day from the 70s that I of a game at at Bush Stadium every single player in the lineup was hitting over 300. And I'm like, what happened to that? Yeah. Anyway, but so yeah. you have launch angle, you have barrel rate, you have all these, you know, the OPS, the the weighted runs created plus. Do you think that any of, I mean, this is going beyond just the numbers that you, and I think that's great what you're doing in terms of being able to, to adequately and accurately kind of weigh all these things. Do you have any sense, though, of, of how this is affecting players psychologically? I mean, when I, when I look at some of this, like the launch angle stuff, it seems some people have just turn themselves inside out to the point where they're incapable of doing what otherwise may be came naturally to them at one point.
5: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's for some guys, it's, it's changed their career dramatically in a positive way. I mean, I think of like a guy like Justin Turner who, you know, remade himself mid career and uh, you know, it was a good thing for him. He made a lot of money. He's had a great long career, Uh, but some guys are trying to do things that, as you said, is is not natural to them and is not right for their swing plane. And, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's, it's just like anything else. It's not, you know, it's, it's one way to do things. It's not necessarily the right way for every hitter. And if every hitter uh, obsessed about launch angle, um, you know, strikeout rate and the batting average would be even worse than it is right now. Um, so I, I think what you'll probably see is, and I think you're already seeing it, teams prioritizing in terms of how they draft and develop guys, you know, they're looking for the guys who have the things that you cannot teach, which is pitch recognition um, you know, bat speed, quick wrist, that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, the power and, and stuff like that can come later as they do a better job of, of recognizing who they're facing, you know, understanding what opposing pitchers are doing to them at the major league level and understanding those pitchers themselves. Um, you know, that's – so I'm, I'm based in Cleveland where right now the Guardians have a really interesting lineup where it's a very – it's not a lot of pedigree in their lineup, but it's performing really well because they've targeted guys who are high contact, low strikeouts, they don't hit a lot of home runs, unless you're Josh Naylor last night. They don't hit a lot of yeah. home runs, but they make a lot of contact. And I, I think you, you'll probably see teams focus on that more and more. Uh, you know, it, it's the, evolu- the game is always evolving. It's always, you know, things are always cyclical in terms of what's in vogue and what's not. And in recent years, you know, power has been very much in vogue, and teams have been willing to accept the high strikeout rates that come with it. But, um but I think you'll see, uh, you know, a shift back towards a, a contact-oriented approach because, um, you know, we see the pitfalls of, of having you know, a sport that's very much three true outcomes, and you know, and that's that's home runs, walks, and strikeouts. You know, that's gotten to a, a really difficult uh, percentage of, of plate appearances. So, so, yeah, I mean, your your point is a good one in that, you know, not everybody should be obsessed with barreling up the ball and launch angle and that sort of thing. What those numbers do for us as fans is just tell us what is real and what is not. I mean, sometimes you see a guy off to a really hot start, but he's not really hitting the ball very hard, and he's, he's got a high batting average on balls in play, which which basically says that he's getting a lot of blue pits that just happen to be going to the right place, and he's getting pretty lucky, and sometimes you know due for a correction, and sometimes it works the other way where a guy's really slumping, but you know he, he is striking the ball with authority pretty consistently, and usually that stuff turns
4: around. I'd mentioned the batting average issue before, or my my my, my love of the batting average, is as in, in in a pitching sense, is velocity what batting average used to be for batters? In other words, it's now I hear all about spin rate versus velocity, and now everybody throws. I mean, the the, the ninety five plus mile per hour pitchers now yeah. are pretty much dime a dozen. And in a minute here, I'm going to ask you, though, about, about sticky stuff. But just but explain that to me as far am I right, though, that velocity is, is not quite as important as it used to be?
5: Yeah, well, so it's important in that, um, I mean, every, like you said, I mean, it's, it's hard to get drafted anymore if you don't throw mid-90s. You know, the guys who used to throw high 90s consistently were the freaks and were really targeted, um, whereas that's more the norm now. And actually, we're seeing batters fare pretty well against just velocity itself. Um, it's, it's the spin rate, it's the movement on pitches that has gotten really, uh, you know, advanced. And sticky stuff definitely played a huge part in that. Um, and, you know, that's something we can measure now. We can see when a guy is spinning his, his breaking balls and his fastball better than it used to. And that has a direct correlation with how he performs on the mound. So, um, so, you know, it's just the sticky stuff crackdown, I, I think, was an important one for the game because, I mean, you had guys... It, you guys, again, totally changing their careers, but doing it in, yeah, you know, I say illicit, and it was it was kind of winked at for decades, uh, you know, using foreign substances to, to get better control of the ball, but it really got out of control um, in terms of the substances that were being used and the impact it was having on pitches. Um, I mean, stuff that was, I don't know if you've seen the picture of, of the spider attack, where uh, you know the, the marketing photo that goes with it is, is someone holding a cinder block. Uh, in their hand, it's uh, just dangling from their hand because the spider tack is that strong. Um, that's a substance they were using on baseball. So, uh, you know, when, when you work, when you learn how to use that uh, to your advantage as a pitcher, it's a really dangerous weapon. Uh, and that's, and that, that correlates with what we've seen offensively where, you know, it's just harder than ever to hit. There's so much movement. There's so much velocity with the movement. Um, it's just harder than ever for for these guys to go up there and and hit 300. So I understand, like, fans want to see, you know, like you just said, you want to see 300 hitters. That's what we're accustomed to being the barometer for success. Uh, But, you know, I would challenge, uh, you know, the Babe Ruths or or guys who played in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, to to hit in today's environment. They would be very different offensive players because it's just that more challenging with the movement we see now.
2: We're talking baseball with Anthony Kastrovitz, who is a graduate of Ohio University, lives in Cleveland. He's the author of a book called A Fan's Guide to Baseball Analytics. You see his writing on MLB.com. He's a contributor to the MLB Network. Uh, Anthony, I think you know Joe and I are huge St. Louis Cardinals fans. We're on the air today in St. Louis. Any uh, any uh, analytics or uh, analysts' eye view of the St. Louis Cardinals? Have they over- or underperformed this year in your perspective? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, they've they've
5: they're probably about where I expect them to be. It, it's it's a flawed team in some respects. It's a it's a good team, but it does have its flaws. And you know, they they came out the gate pretty strong. They struggled the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see more depth and and just impact uh, pitching there, and and that's kind of been an issue for them in, in recent weeks. But. Um, and of course, they're dealing with you know Adam Rainwright on the shelf, much like your your host you're filling in for there. Um,
4: so I don't know that's if they're right. Right. gathering <laughs> right. or what, but
5: uh, hence, Pecky yeah. Naughton
4: taking the mound tonight for the Cardinals. Yeah, yeah. that's right, that's right.
5: Um, but yeah, I mean, the offense is on measure, performed pretty well. There's there's guys you'd like to see get hotter, but. Um, but, you know, it's great to see Nolan Arnato playing like the MVP. We all know he can be. He wasn't that guy really the last couple of years. He wasn't at that MVP caliber level, but he's played like it uh, so far. So that's great for them. But, yeah, they might have to make some tweaks uh, midseason. Uh, they're, they're kind of in that pack of teams that that are imperfect. But, but
4: certainly, uh,
5: you know, I, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't
4: be in contention midseason, you know. Um, Do you think they need a the bat are... by midseason in order for them to be competitive? Uh, I'm sorry, it cut out there. Do you think they they need a bat to add a bat oh. by midseason to in order for them to be competitive in the playoffs?
5: Yeah, I mean it's that's a distinct possibility. I I almost feel like they might be more in the market for an impact starter if if that's something they could swing. Um, that's easier said than done. The problem, yeah. um, you know, with the expanded postseason is there's just not going to be many sellers and there's going to be a lot of buyers and that's a difficult market uh, to work within. So and and you know the Cardinals have been not really prone to making the big splash anyway in recent years, you know. And, hey, to their credit, you know, they, they did some low-profile moves last year that worked out really well for them midseason, and they went on that great run in the second half. But, um, you know, you might have to work that magic again.
2: Anthony Castro Vince, thanks for being on with us on ninety seven one FM Talk. The book is called A Fan's Guide to Baseball Analytics. Catch them on MLB.com and the MLB Network. Coming up in the next hour, we're talking politics with – Josh Kraushauer, The National Journal. We're going to go over Joe Biden's inflation speech and get to a whole lot more. 97.1, in for Mark Reardon. I'm Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold, 97.1 FM Talk. In for Mark Reardon today, I'm Scott Jennings alongside. With Joe Arnold, and we're so pleased to be here. By the way, it's great to just talk
4: to my old friends again back in St. Louis. I grew up in Belleville. Mark talks about that frequently, went to Altov Catholic High School, went to Lindenwood at the time, college, now university, and so thrilled to be here, and we're so thrilled that even Mark's, some of his normal guests, have decided not to boycott the show with him not being here.
2: That's right. We've got one on the line from the National Journal, our old friend, Josh Krauschar, is joining us today. You hear Josh on the show, you read him in National Journal, he writes the Against the Grain column, and if I might add has an amazing podcast called Against the Grain. Great guests. I find frequently Josh is ahead of the curve before every other political analyst in Washington, D.C. Josh, welcome to 97.1 FM Talk. Glad to be with you today.
6: Hey, Scott. Great to be back on the show with you guys.
2: Thanks for being here. We got a lot going on politically. We just spent about uh, 20 minutes going over Joe Biden's speech today on inflation. Obviously, this was less about policy and more about politics. Did you hear anything from the president today that caught your attention?
6: No, there's nothing new. And that's part of the problem, that that they're trying to spin away uh, an economic challenge instead of really coming up with real substantive changes or, or policies. Um, and, and, you know, I think it stems from the fact that initially the top economic advisors at the White House were, were claiming that that the, all the spending that was done through through the the COVID emergency bill last year wouldn't have any inflationary impact, and now that that you know maybe they're not saying that publicly, but if you talk to the the, the top advisors privately, they realize they may have overshot the mark uh, with that degree of spending, and it's created a political problem that they're going to have a hard time turning around with inflation uh, looking no showing no signs of, of going away.
2: What was interesting to me about the speech today was for all of his bluster about taking responsibility and being the being where the buck stops and so on and so forth. Joe Biden sought to cast Republicans as the villains in this inflation fight. I saw this speech today really as trying to get a hold of the political narrative. And I wondered, what do you make of Joe Biden dragging Rick Scott into this? I understand Rick Scott's plan is what the Democrats want to attack. My contention is nobody knows who Rick Scott is. No Republican senator has signed on to this plan. Is this a gambit that could work for Biden or are they grasping at straws?
6: Well, look, I think you have to think about it in a broader sense. I don't think it's going to work on the economy as so much because the president's in charge and the Democrats are in control of Congress. So it's hard to really shift the blame on the opposition when they don't have a whole lot of control of things. But, you know, I think we're seeing the beginning of a frame, a political frame that the White House is going to be using for the midterm elections, They, they know that they're going to have a hell of a time selling their own record with the president's job approval, you know, 40% or so. And, you know, Democrats losing on the generic ballot they, they know that it's going to be hard to, to run on their own accomplishments. So they're going to try to make this uh, a contrast. Uh, the line about ultra mega Republicans is something I think you're going to hear a whole lot from um, in, in, in the coming months. And look, I mean, there's some, some big Senate races. There's some big contests where Republicans are, Potentially nominating some some folks that may be a little bit uh you know out of the mainstream a little bit too far to the right, so you know I, I think they're they're basically hoping that Republicans you know shoot themselves in the foot a few times in, in some big races, and then that that narrative might be able to take hold a little bit. but it's never good to rely on your opposition to to mess up you know if you if you're if you've taken things out of your own control if you don't have the power to change things and your policies haven't worked. It's not a good, good, good place to be in. So, you know, the fact that they're trying to draw a contrast, the fact that they're saying, look, you may not like us, but the other guys are even worse. That's that's not a really encouraging advertisement for this White House's record.
4: I do want to talk to you about the candidates and the primaries that are going on today, for instance, in a a minute, Josh. But but first, are you surprised that that Biden even took on inflation at all? Because- the, the, for the most part, the, over the last week, the you know the big story is the Supreme Court. The big story is the alito draft, and that seems to be what most Democrats are able to rally around. And I guess there's two questions: one, are you surprised that they even took this on rather than just hitting on the notes that most Democrats are able to rally around? And secondly, is this a game changer? This issue of abortion to be able to be maybe the uh, the antidote for the where inflation is just the Achilles heel here for the Democrats this fall.
6: Yeah, you know. I- I, I think he has to talk about the number one issue that's on voters' minds. I don't think a president can afford to ignore what is the central issue in the midterms, inflation, the economy. But, you know, this was a very I feel your pain speech. Is, again, not, not a whole lot of policy, more that I recognize the problem. But the problem is he should have said that a year ago. He should have said that six months ago. Like, where was the I feel your pain moment that I realized this is an issue, you know, when it was actually happening, when, when the prices were soaring and when you were saying that this is transitory for months and months? I mean, it doesn't give a whole lot of confidence to to this competent to the competence of this administration when it's not just Biden, but it's Janet Yellen. It's the Fed chair. It's your top economic advisors like Jared Bernstein going on cable news saying that this is this is going to pass in a few months and and it's gotten worse. So, you know, this is a too little too late. I think Um, you got to talk about 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 inflation. You've got to show you care. You got to, you know, I think you know, maybe expanding uh, you know energy option, domestic energy production would would be a, a good idea that could go against his own party's left and and show that he's willing to cut against the grain, if you will, of his own party. But that's not on the table. They haven't really come up with any innovative uh, solutions. You know, as far as abortion goes, I think that's a big uh, wild card in the midterms. Uh, I think it's it's not going to have the same effect in every race, and I don't think it's going to have a dramatic effect in changing the political trajectory. But, you know, my my own view of it is like candidates that sound too extreme on abortion, whether it's left or right, are going to have unique problems and then are going to have trouble winning over moderate voters. So, um, you know, one one example, which I'm actually writing about right now, is uh, Pennsylvania, where uh, you've got a Republican frontrunner for the governorship in Pennsylvania who wants to ban all abortions, even including the life of a mother exception. I mean, that that's extreme. That's that's well far to where your average Pennsylvania voter is. And that could cost Republicans, not just the governorship, but it could have some problems down ballot. But then you see, you know, Tim Ryan, uh, who, who I think is a pretty good Senate candidate in Ohio, who was asked on, on Fox whether, you know, he supported any restrictions on, on abortion. And he couldn't name, name any at all during the interview. And I think that that is especially in a red state where you've got to win every swing voter you possibly can that's also a problem um, for the Democrats. So I think it's a really a a case-by-case situation, but maybe a little more downside risk for, for Republicans, given how good the environment is overall and how Republicans are leading on a whole lot of other policy issues.
2: This abortion issue, I think when it initially hit, Republicans were nervous, Josh, about the possibility that Democrats might be able to use it. But I think when people, when the fog cleared after the shock of the the draft uh, uh, coming out, leaking out of the Supreme Court, when the fog cleared, people started to really focus on, Republican operatives started to really focus on the debate. And what Democrats want, and you just pointed it out, is really more abortion access than is supported by the polling. In fact, most polling shows most Americans want something uh uh beyond 15 weeks maybe 20 weeks but there's there's a zone there where people say no we want it cut off but no democrat candidate you mentioned tim ryan can seem to articulate what is the cutoff. and ryan is someone who's been portrayed as a moderate on this issue i think he voted in the house twice to ban partial birth abortion he couldn't even say that maybe you could explain to us the political dynamics of the Democratic Party, are their candidates just not able to say something that's in their political best interest because it is just not accepted by their donors and their base?
6: Yeah, this is really, a they're scared of their own base on a whole lot of issues. Uh, and, and look, I think on abortion, they, they feel they like maybe they have a little more running room because of, of, of you know, the, the possibility that Republicans overreach. But it, it is an example, Scott, that um, on these big cultural issues, social issues in particular, uh, the donors that are well to the left of the average voter really call the shots. And look, I mean, Democrats are also worried that their own voters, the base voters that are fired up about abortion, that if you have a Democrat even in a reddish state like Ohio, if they say we want want some common sense restrictions, that they, they they'll protest him right, <laughs> and they'll get mad at him, and they won't show up to vote for vote for him in Ohio. And if that happens. There's no way he can win either. So, you know, it's kind of a catch-22 that Democrats, you know, they don't want to alienate their base, but if they don't put some distance between themselves and the base, they also can't win swing states and and, and, and certainly red state races like in Ohio.
2: Josh, there was a big kerfuffle this week when U.S. Senator and Republican leader Mitch McConnell made some comments to USA Today that I think got blown out of proportion, in which he said it's possible that Republicans could put forward abortion ban legislation. If you read the entirety of the comments, what he said was that if the Supreme Court uh, goes ahead and does this decision, then of course legislation could be filed in Congress or in the state capitals. Uh, Democrats went crazy about this. Today, McConnell uh, made some additional comments and said that he didn't think there were 60 votes for what Chuck Schumer wants to do on the floor this week, and he doesn't think there are 60 votes in the Senate uh, for what, uh, you know, a total ban on abortion. And in his mind, most of the action on this, if not all of it, would come in the state capitals. Is that how you see it? Do you believe it's more likely that we'll see abortion legislation action in the Congress or more likely that you're going to see different states do different things depending on the jurisdiction?
6: Definitely the state capitals. I mean, yeah, I, is, is anything getting through Congress these days? Uh, it's, 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 I mean, it does show sort of the lasting wisdom of having the filibuster, of, of needing a 60-vote 60, a 60 threshold, to, to accomplish major consequential legislation. I mean I think I think that's the point Senator McConnell was trying to make, but it, it did get lost in the shuffle and, and he did talk about the notion of a federal abortion ban. But you know, that that is why th- I, I've actually privately talked to a couple Democratic senators who privately say that it would be crazy to get to get rid of the filibuster, Mitch McConnell's right, but they can't dare say that. It's another issue where they can't say that because the base will get ticked off of them. But they know that, especially now where they can't can't even get 50 votes for, for anything Holding the majority, the notion of giving Republicans, blowing up the filibuster, giving the Republicans a 50-vote threshold to pass um, pro-life legislation would be suicidal, politically speaking, and, and their own agendas, and in their own priorities. So yeah, I mean, you're going to see more action in the states. Uh, you know I think the governor's race is, you, abortion is actually going to be a more, at least in certain states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, maybe, the, the, the issue may, may be more of a, of a big factor. I'm also hearing Scott that in some of these uh, Democratic primaries, where you have like lawmakers facing a primary challenge from the left, a lot of the Democratic polls I'm hearing has shown an upsurge in enthusiasm for the for the left wing candidates. um The two 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 races in particular coming up in the next couple weeks, where you have two two of the remaining more moderate Democratic lawmakers: Henry Cuellar, Texas; Kurt Schrader, in Oregon. And uh, they could lose to Elizabeth Warren uh, endorsed uh, progressive candidates because of with abortion being a, a big factor in these primaries. So, you know, I, but that's another dynamic I'll be watching to to see where where the Democratic Party is headed on this.
4: Before you go, let's talk about primaries and what's going on today. You have Nebraska and West Virginia, certainly this is sort of a precursor of of maybe North Carolina and Pennsylvania and Georgia. And these all these uh, these contests I'm talking about are ones where former President Donald Trump has endorsed. What's on the line here for, for Trump, and what kind of tea leaves are you going to be looking for as these results come through tonight?
6: Yeah, I mean, the big the, for Trump, the big race I'm watching is that Nebraska governor's race, which uh, it, it is a classic three-way primary field, or at least three serious candidates. And one has got the Trump endorsement, one's got the governor, the conservative governor's endorsement, and one is kind of running up the middle, sort of a more centrist, uh, more moderate Republican um you know Herbster the the Trump endorsed candidate has some pretty serious allegations about sexual misconduct that that have, have really drove the campaign in the final uh, week or two and you know it, 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 you normally you think that would that would cost a candidate like that in this type of race but look if if, if Trump can win in Nebraska that this would be a good good little stretch for for the president winning with JD Vance in Ohio if you could get get uh Herbster in Nebraska and then you've got uh, West Virginia. I think Alex Mooney's in pretty good shape in, in that in that Republican primary. He's going to have some hurdles further further in May, but boy, that, it could be a good, nice little two week stretch for the for the president. Uh, for
2: Donald Trump in these primary seasons, uh Josh, he had a good night in Ohio. Um, obviously, he's got some skin in the game tonight. Looking ahead, it seems to me his biggest opportunities are going to come up in the North Carolina. Uh, Senate primary, where it looks to me like Ted Budd has taken control of that after getting the the Donald Trump endorsement. But his biggest pitfall is coming up in Georgia. Uh, Is that how you see it? Or do you see uh, other other places on the map where the president may have some problems? Former
6: president. Yeah. Georgia could be uh, a real embarrassment for for Trump. He spent more political capital blasting Brian Kemp, the the conservative governor, and and, and the, the David Perdue, who's the Trump-endorsed candidate, has not gotten any momentum. I, I think this is going to be a pretty pretty easy win for, for Governor Kemp. Uh, Alabama is also taking place the same day. I, I think that's also going to be sort of an embarrassment for Trump. He endorsed Mo Brooks, the, the Trumpiest guy in the field initially. He unendorsed him when he was losing in the polls. And I'm hearing that Mo Brooks actually is in second place in a few of the latest polls even though he doesn't have the Trump endorsement anymore. So that could be a little bit embarrassing for the former president as well, especially if, you know, Mo Brooks somehow sneaks into that runoff um, and, and puts uh, Trump. Uh, I imagine Trump would then endorse the, the other candidate. But, you know, it, stranger things have happened uh, in, in, in politics. And there's also, you know, North Carolina is going to be, I think, a good good state for, for Trump. But, you know, he, he endorsed uh, the primary challenger to the sitting governor of Idaho, who's going to win in a, in a, in a, in a landslide, I, I would expect, next week. And you've got some other losses for Trump-endorsed candidates in the next couple of weeks as well for House races and so on. So, you know, I think Trump's got a mixed mixed record. The, the, the big test, though, is going to be Oz, the Dr. Oz, Dave McCormick, and, uh, and Kathy Barnett in Pennsylvania. The, Dr. Oz is the Trump-endorsed candidate. Um, you know, it looks like he may have some some momentum. Uh, that'll be a, a, one of the swing Trump-endorsement races that I'll be paying close attention to.
4: Before there were trump challengers against institutional republicans there were tea party challengers and we had last hour josh on on uh, 97.1 fm talk here on the mark Reardon show we had on senator Rand paul i'm going to play a quick soundbite for you before you go just so you're hey, so you're clued in on what what he said making some news here today about what should be done and how the u.s should oversee the uh, the money being appropriated for ukraine
3: but i can tell you on your show today something we haven't told anybody yet is that it's, i'm going to have an amendment and i'm going to inspire Add an amendment to it to create a special inspector general to oversee this money to make sure. Look, in the, everybody's gaga over Ukraine, and that's fine, but historically they've been in the top 10 for corrupt countries. So I think we do need to, we can't just shovel piles of money out the door, you know, billions of dollars and have nobody oversee it.
4: So, Josh, any any gut reaction here to the the Tea Party Rand Paul, uh, not rearing his head, but basically making his claim here?
6: Well, look, I I don't think there's going to be any huge complaint that we should make sure the money is spent responsibly. I think that's uh, of common interest, and I think Republicans and Democrats alike might agree on that. You know, the notion that that, uh, Ukraine is a corrupt country and and sort of these, these subtle slurs against Ukraine, you hear that a little bit from sort of the libertarian right or, or some of the anti-interventionist right. And, and I, I don't think that is um, embraced by, by Republicans or, or Democrats. Uh, that, that There's been a more reticence from Senator Paul, maybe some of these other ale- Republicans that are less uh, eager to for, for the U.S. to be engaged overseas. But, um, you know, I think we're seeing the stakes that are awfully high right now, not just for the U.S., but for our European allies. And to kind of snub or offer that subtle slur against the ukraine i think is a you know that kind of is a showcase of senator paul's true sentiments about the, the larger subject
2: josh kraushar the against the grain columnist at national journal and before we let you go a huge washington nationals fan we couldn't let you go without letting you tee off a little bit on the nats how are you feeling about it right now in the nation's capital
6: yeah josh? This is a rebuilding year. Um, you know, I always like to talk trash with Mark uh, about the Cardinals versus the Nats on, on this show. But, um, you know, it, it's a down year. And, and, and you know, we're going to have a year or two maybe of, of, of tough tough times. But we got some good prospects. We got Josiah Gray. We got a good catcher who looks like he's going to be pretty good in the future. But uh, not not a good start to the season. And I'm not, I'm not expecting a whole lot this year. We, we got a World spots. Series Number in 2019.
4: One, Juan Soto is an amazing player. Number two, the Reds have only won six games. The Nats have <laughs> won ten. So congratulations.
2: <laughs> yeah, Josh Crouchar from the National Journal. Thanks for being with us today on ninety seven one FM Talk. Read him at the National Journal Against the Grain. You can get his podcast wherever you get your podcast, the Against the Grain podcast. Josh, thanks for being with us, brother. Thanks, guys. All right, 97.1 FM Talk. I'm Scott Jennings. We've got Joe Arnold. We're both in for Mark Reardon. We're taking a break. We're going to come back in just a few minutes. 97.1 FM Talk.
4: This is the Mark Reardon Show on 97.1 FM Talk.
1: We're good friends of
4: Mark Reardon, at least I think so, at least for the the, next hour or so. Joe Arnold and Scott Jennings filling in for Mark. Mark's at home recuperating after he became the super spreader at the Kentucky Derby. Over the weekend. And so, Mark, we hope you're enjoying your uh,
2: your solace there, your your recuperation. Hoping to get Mark back in the studio sometime this week. Maybe, maybe we get him back on Thursday. We're back tomorrow.
4: We're back tomorrow. So, I mean, fair warning. And actually, I should mention, even within this hour, we have some exciting uh, uh, information for you here. First of all, with so much of this, as Scott, you were mentioning off the air that you think it's like a made for Netflix drama uh-huh. of this uh this this corrections guard and this inmate from from alabama and of course this has ended with uh, at least one person's death also uh, scott and i both just by happenstance happened to to both give blood earlier today and we're gonna have on the uh sharon watson from the american red cross missouri arkansas spokesperson talk about why it's so important right now but right now i want
2: to bring we're, on- we're giving blood All, we're, we're giving blood yes. and we're giving uh, real blood on our next guest yes like it's it's leaking we're leaving <laughs> It's it's not good. For Dave
4: him. Simons is going to hang up when you talk about <laughs> leaking blood on him. But there has been some bloodletting Dave Simons of KMOX's dollars and cents on Wall Street. Four down days in a row. Is is there hope on the horizon here?
7: Well, yeah, I think hemorrhaging. That That's probably a pretty good term for all that. <laughs> oh, um, you know, get the tourniquet out. You know, guys. um, There's always going to be brighter days for the market, but I've been very clear with our clients. I don't know that we're near the bottom of this. I I think the majority of the correction is over, but let's simplify things. This really, yeah, Russia, Ukraine, that's a little bit of it, but they could end that thing tomorrow, and that doesn't really change the core problem that's going on with the markets and the economy, and that is inflation and the Fed's desire to tame it. And there is not a lot of trust and belief in this current rendition of the Fed that they'll be able to do that because they've just been so late in addressing it. I I was on my radio show starting last summer, and I wasn't some lone voice. A lot of us were out there saying, come on, guys, you got to start raising rates now. You got to stop with the easy stimulus money because it's becoming very inflationary. And for some reason, these bright, intellectuals decided that they weren't really going to address it until earlier this year. I mean, I don't mean to, you know, jump on the bandwagon here and really slam these guys, but they've been wrong, and, and we're paying the price for it right now.
2: Dave, Scott Jennings here, and thanks for being with us to discuss this uh, matter. It, it's interesting that we've had such a massive downturn, but I don't hear national financial analysts and other people in your line of work uh, describing it as a panic. But when you look at the numbers, I mean, if you just looked at them in a vacuum, you you could easily get panicked if you're just an average investor. Do you see this? Did you see this sort of slow motion unwinding coming? And then what's your advice right now to the average? I mean, look, you know, we're average guys. We got, you know, 401ks, we put money into our kids' college savings account. You know, you you open up your your investment thing on the on your phone at, at your own peril today what's your advice to the average person because it it does feel like it's out of your control and and there's really no short-term move you can make but the impulse is there to do something what what's your thought on it
7: yeah scott you're you're right on this this is really a bifurcated market and there isn't and shouldn't be a lot of panic any panic for the average investor because the broader market the s p 500 and the dow They're barely into double-digit correction. This is not even officially a bear market at this point. Where the bear market is and where the panic should be and is are for those folks who decided to play all of these meme-related stocks, these pandemic-related stocks. So you're talking Peloton and Zoom and DocuSign and even Netflix, which is a powerhouse, did so well during the pandemic. But can you believe a a stock like Netflix is down over 70%? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we haven't seen in 20 years since the internet bubble burst from 2000 to 2002. So my advice on that is, yeah, if you still are writing a lot of the aforementioned pandemic-related growth stocks with high PEs and little earnings, even even after this debacle, I think it's okay to still lighten up there. For the rest of us, not at all. You have to look at your long-term goals and objectives. And one thing that I always tell people – Do a stress test on yourself. I always say that even in bull markets, go into your accounts, go into your 401k, all of your investments, add it all up, and then slice 20% off immediately, boom, right there. And then decide, "Uh uh-oh, I can't retire next year if that happens. Or, "Uh uh-oh, I was going to go buy a house and I can't do that. Well, if that's the answer, then you're probably not well-situated. Your goals were unreasonable. Everybody... Even though it's heartburn, and as we said, bloodletting, everybody should be able to still meet their long-term goals, even with a 20% correction in their own portfolio. So if it's well-diversified and quality blue chip stocks, and even some bonds, commodities, what have you, you will be fine.
4: The question, I guess, boils down to its expectations. And sometimes, whether it's listening to uh, you know late-night pitches or Uh, or internet, uh, you know, uh, uh, advertising on Bitcoin or whatever else. There are some folks who want to be able to ride the market into a different financial strata. And and rather than, you know, this is what I can generally expect as a return on my investment if I put it there over the long period of time. So I think this is what you're talking about is that, for instance, you know, Bitcoin. Bitcoin was going to be the solution to many people's, um, you know, station, where they can right. say, I, listen, I can go ahead and I believe in this long term. It's going to make a big difference. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put, I don't know, wh- whatever is in my, my bank account right now, $10,000. And because I'm going to ride this out, and it's going to be great down the road. But now I'm looking at this saying I only have 5000 left because it's down 50% from its height. So is, is it a matter of, of, of just basically going into this with your eyes wide open and saying, let's not expect to to triple my money?
7: You, you, you know, there's a reason why the tortoise and the hare is one of Aesop's greatest fables, because it is applicable to so many things that we do in life, and especially with investing. And, and I know it's trite and it's corny. You know, the, investing is a marathon. It's not a sprint, but it's true. And too many people, you're exactly right, get caught up in the ads that they see on TV or something on the Internet that, you know, everybody else is in Bitcoin. You should do it, too. Or Sell everything and go to gold because the dollar is going to zero. That I've heard that for the 30 years I've been in the business. And instead, there is nothing wrong with finding some good quality blue chip companies that you know. If you go out and ask people who have put so much money into Bitcoin, tell me what it does. Tell me what it is. Most people really can't answer it. Uh, there's really no utility to it. It doesn't pay a dividend. I'm agnostic, by the way. I don't really care if anyone invests in it. But it's got to be a certain small amount of your portfolio. And if that's true with any individual investment. Stay diversified, stick with blue chip stuff, and use reasonable goals. I tell people it, it, there's nothing wrong with using a 5% annualized return. I know for younger people out there, they're already going, oh, are you kidding me, old man? Are you I, I, Look, 5 to 6% has been an investment return that has helped people achieve long-term goals for a century. There is no question in my mind it's going to be the same. So set everything around your long-term goals at that number. And if you make more, congratulations, that's icing on the cake.
2: Dave, Scott Jennings here. Uh, We've been talking about the stock market, which was down again today, at least the Dow was. S&P was up narrowly. The NASDAQ was up nearly a percent, uh, but obviously been a downtrend in the market. Another place where people uh, think or try to build wealth is in the value of their homes. And we've obviously mm-hmm. been in a, in a big swing up on home prices. What's your forecast on that right now? Because, uh, you know, there's been a bit of a housing shortage. A lot of people were, were moving around, you know, as we came out of the pandemic, paying huge prices for homes. Do you think we're going to start to see those prices come down now if, if we are in a recession or we're going to a recession? Or do you think those home values are going to stay or maybe even continue to go up? I actually think we, we've uh, established some higher plateaus. I, I really do. I, I, this is not
7: 2008. That was a housing bubble that was based purely on greed from every agency. You had the banks that were just kind of turning away and saying anyone who could fog a mirror, hey, there's a loan for you. And the government backstopped it, and there was no accountability, and that led to the housing bubble that burst. That's not happening now. These banks now are required to give stress tests to make sure they're well capitalized. You actually have to have a decent credit score now to get a loan. What we're seeing is, is absolutely the equilibrium of supply and demand in housing completely out of whack. There is still more demand than supply. So it's my contention that even if there is a slowdown in the economy, and I think there will be with the Fed raising rates, home prices at worst will level off. At best, continue to go up here a little bit, but I do not see them coming down and certainly crashing like they did twelve thirteen years ago.
4: Certainly, the tax implications for mortgage deductions and things have long been a, a value of of home ownership. There have been times however, where I've looked at my own life and and uh, and resources and wondered, would I actually be ahead if I had just continued to rent over the years rather than buy because of the just the the, the liability that you take when you you, when you sink into it all depends, I guess how how what kind of shape your house is in in the first place is home ownership still a good idea it It really is, but that's a fair question because that a lot of people can't write
7: off their mortgage interest in fact, most people can't anymore so there there's a little bit of a downside to that, but building up equity in a home is still a great diversifier it it really is, and it's something that should not be seen as a pure investment like your stocks uh but it is something that typically over time at least stays um even with inflation it's a good inflation hedge so if you can afford to buy it is still preferable to renting it really is now people can make money if they're in the rental business of course and by the way one more thing on this commercial real estate i think is going to continue to stay hot i would not be you know investing in office space in new york city or places like that you, that's one area that has seen prices come down, and I can see that continuing to weaken. But, man, oh, man, the data that I look at at some of this, the, the uh, construction that's going on from a oh, a business standpoint, especially in the southern half of the U.S., is really hot and will continue to be hot. I was just down in Texas, and I drove from Dallas down to San Antonio. Guys, I don't know if you've been down there any time recently, but that Highway 35 from Dallas that goes through Waco into Austin down to San Antonio, I swear in 50 years that's going to be one big city. I mean, they're just building everywhere down there, and that is not going to slow down even if the economy does
4: suburbs maybe i have to wonder about downtowns i have to wonder from work from home policies and the reordering of society after the pandemic and and crime and i mean and and crime and so i I just wonder about commercial i mean as far as commercial real estate maybe in the suburbs maybe And i don't mean and of course i don't mean to to knock our downtown uh you know friends who are listening you know off kilter here it is it's possible to come back i I love downtown st louis i hope that you know there's the office space is uh is used by people but ultimately you just got to wonder i mean it's a long-term strategy about where you're investing in commercial real estate
7: well you you nailed it that's exactly right and um i think we just have to be honest here i i love my hometown i'm from here uh i've been part of a group you know for the Lou here i i i just i've done a lot of things to try to get downtown back but man i'm i'm old enough even back in the 60s when we were building the arch at bush stadium And we've tried and tried and tried and tried, and I'm still holding out hope. But would I be necessarily an investor in some commercial projects downtown? Maybe if it was a tech incubator, and we have those. But outside of that, not. And that's not just a a comment on St. Louis. That would be true in most of your old line uh, cities. Maybe down south, Orlando, Nashville, the aforementioned Texas cities. Phoenix, Scottsdale would be different, but most big cities I probably would not be an investor in.
2: Dave, one last question before we let you go. And it's a sort of a half financial, half public affairs question. Uh, recently, Fidelity started offering Bitcoin as an investment option on its 401k platform. This prompted Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and Minnesota Senator Tina Smith to send a letter to Fidelity, and they want the government. Now, it seems like to look into Fidelity's decision, what do you think about that? I, I am I am curious about your view of what Fidelity did, and do you believe uh, senators and the federal government need to engage here uh, before big investment houses go too far down this road? Uh, the,
7: the answer to the second part of that is easy. No, stay out of the way. Now, with that said, there has to be responsibility, and I personally, uh, I winced when I saw the news from Fidelity, and I like that company, I really do. Um, but I winced when I saw that they were going to open that up to to uh, investors through 401Ks who just, uh, many of them won't have the knowledge. All they know is, hey, I see it in the headlines all the time and how it's making a lot of people rich, you got in early, and they'll start pouring money in. What I would like to see is some accountability and responsibility within Fidelity or within the companies who have 401Ks there to say, hey, you can invest in it but you're going to cap it at 5%, 10% at the most. If they can self-manage like that, it would keep the Elizabeth Warrens. Well, I was going to say away. No, it'll never keep her away. But (laughs) I don't mean to get into personal politics here, but I think it would help. It would definitely help if they would just police themselves. But if they decided tomorrow, yeah, we don't really like the feedback that we got for doing this. And we're going to pull the plug. I think I would cheer that.
2: Dave Simons is the host of KMOX's Dollars and Cents. It comes on Sunday afternoon at 3 when the St. Louis Cardinals are not playing baseball. He's a certified financial planner, Senior VP of Investments at UBS. Dave, thanks for joining us this afternoon on 97.1 FM Talk.
4: Thanks, guys. It was fun. I appreciate that. When we come back, uh, Phil Holloway is uh, f- a Fox News legal analyst. We've all been following this crazy story out of Alabama that ended yesterday in Evansville, Indiana, with this uh, corrections guard and, uh, and an inmate uh, taking off together and ended with one of them dying. When we come back on 97.1 FM Talk, what happened here and what's that search
1: like?
2: Thanks for listening, St. Louis. Scott Jennings here along with Joe Arnold. We are filling in for our friend Mark Reardon, who's on the mend from COVID, and we're hoping to get him back in the studio sometime in the next few days. But we're going to be here for today and tomorrow talking about the news. Well, we're presuming they're going to invite us back tomorrow. Yeah, we, we haven't been that, fired yet. That was the original plan. We haven't been fired yet, although we still have 30 minutes to go. And, uh, and no one's – it's like in the movie Bullworth where Oliver Platt's like, cutting all the cords and pulling down all the all the dials and as Bullworth goes off on TV. So we're going to stay with it as long as they'll allow it. And joining us on the show to talk about this crazy story with the Alabama prison guard is Fox News legal analyst and former police officer Philip Holloway. He's now uh, an attorney with a law firm in Georgia. Uh, He is a member of the Rational Ground Policy Think Tank. And we are talking to him about this this Boy, Philip, this story, uh, which ended tragically, have you ever seen anything like this? How common is it uh, for a prison guard to run off with an inmate? In the way this thing unfolded,
1: nuts. You know, hey, hey, guys, and I think you're doing great. I was listening uh, before the commercial break, and it sounds like you're doing great, filling in for Mark. Hope he gets better real soon. Listen. Uh, You know, this is not – he and I spoke about this less than a week ago, and I told Mark when we talked, I said I guarantee you within a week uh, they'll be caught. Unfortunately, she's now passed away. Now, the big question that I have is, was it really a self-inflicted gunshot wound? It wouldn't surprise me if it is, but it also wouldn't surprise me if it's not. This guy's a killer, okay? He kills women. It's what he likes to do. That's what he's in jail for. Now, jailhouse romances, to sort of get to your question, uh, between guards and and those who they are supposed to be guarding, it's not unheard of. It's certainly um, not the first time we've seen this. It is very, very unusual. But uh, a lot of people who are in jail um, are very charismatic. A lot of them are um very good you know con men con women and 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 they have the personality where they they can sort of prey on individuals who they perceive to may, maybe have some type of emotional or other vulnerability so that that person would be susceptible to their their charms okay so if you got somebody who, who, who may be a little bit socially awkward that doesn't get a lot of attention uh, maybe um, is seeking romance but not finding it uh, if you show that person the attention that they crave then then that's your in and that's how you manipulate people psychologically, and it appears that she fell victim to him uh, just like probably other people have done in the past. Uh, it's just that she was in a position of authority and in a position to, to basically give him what he wanted, which was the freedom, which only lasted just a few days.
4: Fox News legal analyst Philip Holloway is also a former police officer. Joe Arnold and Scott Jennings in from Mark Reardon. Let me ask you about how a manhunt works. So because I mean this, they ended up in Evansville, Indiana, and presumably uh, authorities there recognized them or had some way of, of knowing uh, whether I don't know if they were in the same vehicle or not or if' it's license plate, plate readers or but t- to the extent that you can you can peel back that layer of the onion and and let us know how are these? different police agencies in different states and different jurisdictions talking to each other and is that kind of the beauty of or of how you actually solve cases like
1: this? well but the, the light you mentioned the license plate reader you know <clears throat> these are incredible devices and you know we can debate the, the whether or not they're good or bad based on privacy concerns in another context but they they are very effective and basically police officers driving around in marked vehicles or even unmarked vehicles, um, or you can have stationary um, license plate readers. Not, I know an individual who's uh, who actually owns one and has it set up outside in his, in his driveway, uh, but, you know, it, it basically automatically reads every license plate that it scans. Uh, and if something is reported stolen, uh, then the the officer driving that patrol car will get a hit, you know, can turn around on it and, you know, take whatever law enforcement activity is needed. But, You know, he could not plan this from within the confines of jail. He needed her. He needed her knowledge of uh, law enforcement, law enforcement policies, procedures, how these things work. But at the end of the day, it was coordination and communication between skilled, trained law enforcement professionals. It's almost impossible in, in this day and age to be completely off the grid, when we've got cell phones and we've got geofencing, which is a technology that says, "Look, you know, if 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 this cell phone appears within a certain area, you know, you're going to get a hit on it." Uh, the exact details of how this unfolded uh, are not completely clear, but we do know that it has a lot to do with uh, some uh, a little bit of fortuitousness with the license plate readers that you that you mentioned just a few moments ago.
2: Philip, you raised an issue about when they broke out of jail, you know, they needed the coordination, uh, you know, the inmate needed the guard. But I've been wondering, how the heck hard is it to break out of jail, even if you do have the help from a guard? And I, I, I've been wondering, could there have been someone else involved here? I mean, she's one guard, and I recognize she would have a lot of knowledge and, and ability to help an inmate and, and to spring this kind of a, a plan. But is it possible or do you think maybe even likely that someone else knew about this? And is that where investigators are probably looking right now uh, to see if there were third, fourth, fifth people involved?
1: Well, I'm sure they're looking at that. I I suspect, though, that it's more an issue of of negligence. And it and it may be just negligence and not having enough uh, policies in place to to you know, verify something like this doesn't happen again, because basically as a supervisor, it, she, it, they can just take her at her word. Yeah. You know, I've got to Trent, I got to do an inmate transport to the courthouse for some kind of, you know, a court appearance or for whatever, you know, excuse she wants to make up and nobody questions it. And that's not uncommon. I mean, you can go to any local jail and you can see prisoner transports all day long, back and forth to the courthouse, back and forth to the hospital, back and forth to all kinds of places uh, where inmates who are in custody might legitimately need to go. And it's the usually the local sheriff that runs the jail, and it's their job to, to transport inmates. And so this is a routine occurrence. And so all she's got to do is, is basically invent an excuse to put him in handcuffs and uh, leg irons and a waist chain, just like they do for normal prisoner transports and walk him right out the door. I would imagine that this sheriff's office and many others probably who, who are watching this story unfold might be adjusting their policies to have um, some confirmation that somebody definitely is you know needed or, or expected at the courthouse or somewhere other than the jail for some legitimate reason, even though they're still in custody.
4: Philip, let me ask you before uh, we wrap up here. I, I, I'm I'm thrilled to talk to you, and 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 really interested in this rational ground, COVID policy think tank that you're a part of. The first hour today, Scott and I had on uh, U.S. Senator Rand Paul, who, have, as you know, is one of the primary uh, cr- critics of uh, of Anthony Fauci and 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 by extension <laughs> U.S. policy on on COVID in the first place. Uh, do you see what what do you see coming out of all of this? Do you think we are going to learn lessons? from our overreach this first time around? Or do you think that we're we're doomed to repeat the the mistakes we made in the past?
1: My God, I can only hope that we learn from the mistakes. Um, History, unfortunately, has a way of repeating itself. I noticed on Twitter the other day, uh, Senator Paul, you mentioned him, he retweeted my friend Phil Kirpin, who's also a Rational Ground member, uh, often seen on Fox News and other places like that, where basically – uh, the they were discussing that you know the real the real reason that the government wanted everybody wearing masks all over the place was was really not so much to prevent the spread of COVID, but um, it, you know it's almost like it's for the appearance of doing something uh, so that the government doesn't look bad to its constituent voters, right? Um, we've done a lot of things right I, let's give credit where it's due but we've done so many things wrong so many things that were just silly that people who like in in rational ground we're not a, we're not you know vaccine deniers we're not covid deniers we like to use our brains to think in a rational way to say hey look let's let's think about this does this make sense use critical thinking critical thought and I think that that we will learn some important lessons. Shutting down society, uh, especially one in uh, an, an economy as large as in the United States, it just isn't feasible. Right now we see so many things that, that flow from that, including the baby formula shortage. That's a direct and proximate result. I, I just tweeted that out a few minutes ago on my Twitter feed, at Phil Holloway ESQ. Please check it out. But I just tweeted that. I said, look, this is... This is a supply chain problem. The supply chain is a direct result of the, you know, either the full or partial lockdown policies implemented by states and by the federal government, um, and you know, endorsed by private companies. and And it's a very complicated um, mess to try to unwind. But but it all it all goes back to misguided knee jerk. Government policy—you can't just do something for the sake of doing something. That doesn't work. You've got to do the right things for the right reasons. So let's take a deep breath. Let's slow down. Let's analyze—you know—the negative effects before we just decide to mandate it on everybody.
2: You know, I, I think um, Phil, you, you make some great points on this front because we're already seeing some of the same public health voices start to talk about the number of cases we're going to see over the summer we're going to you know, already talking about a surge and i just i wonder about whether the american people are going to accept anything because you know we've gotten used to now trying to get our lives back to normal we're still dealing with the fallout as you point out like on the baby formula issue but i do think there are going to be some governors out there whose impulse democrat governors whose impulse is to go back into emergency mode i don't I don't think it's in Biden's political interest to do that, but you're probably gonna see some some Democrat governors out there, or maybe even some mayors, uh, who were the final holdouts go back into emergency mode. Do you foresee a patchwork here where you got some people yeah. living in free America and some people living in uh, medieval uh times again?
1: Yeah, and we already kind of have that a little bit, but you I think you're right. You're gonna see some that'll try. I think most that might be inclined to try. Hokel in, in New York and um, in Illinois you know those are just some of the ones that come to mind may try to do some things but the, yeah I think the public has realized that look we're going to have surges if you I, I hate the word surge but every year we have for, for my entire lifetime every every winter we have cold and flu season those are surges we're going to have COVID season too it's just uh, like any other uh, you know illness that's transmissible Uh, We know that it's treatable now. We've learned so much about it. The University of Georgia, right here in my home state, just announced this week that they are abandoning basically all of their COVID protocols. They're going to treat COVID just like any other illness like they always have since they've existed as an institution. You know, if you're sick, stay home. You know, uh, we, we urge you to get vaccinated. But at the end of the day, you know, discuss it with your health care provider. Do what you think is best. We're going to move on business as usual. We've got to. We can't just continue this constant stop, start, stop, start of of COVID mania every time the numbers start going up because they – coronaviruses have been doing this forever they go up they go down they go up they go down same with influenza and now covid19 is is just another one and we're going to have to learn to live with it which that means we're going to have to live our lives as normally as we possibly can stay home when you're sick use common sense go to the doctor and that's about it
2: joe we trusted our show to a backwoods southern lawyer and he delivered <laughs> philip holloway from georgia we're glad to have you on he's a fox news legal analyst he's a former cop he's got a great law practice in georgia and he's a great uh, a great thinker on these COVID issues also thanks for your expertise on the alabama prison guard story philip we hope to uh, get you back in here soon with uh, Mark Reardon, who, in case you missed it, is also recovering from coronavirus yeah. right now. But he sounded yeah, pretty good earlier he'll on be the show. Fine.
1: I talked to him offline. I think he's already doing much better. I've had COVID at least twice, probably three times. But I know twice that uh, I know of. It's 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 just going to be part of life, guys. We got to live with it.
2: Philip Holloway Thanks, from Fox News joining us here on 97.1 FM Talk. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast.